Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Brian Crumby Radio Hour on Saga 960. Inclusionary zoning, what the heck is that? Is it probably a question that uh, a lot of you might be asking? Uh, I read a really interesting and well-written uh, column uh, on the weekend on uh, inclusionary zoning penned by David Wilkes, who is the president and CEO of the Building Industry and Land Development Association of Ontario. BUILD, for short, is an active participant in discussions about everything to do with housing and development uh, and housing policy. And, uh, and I think is interested in increasing, enhancing the housing supply uh, in, uh, in, uh, in the GTA and affordability in the GTA. But inclusionary zoning, which is a new proposal by the city of Toronto is, uh, is something that might change things fairly dramatically. And so I thought that it would be really helpful to have Dave join us, explain to us what it's all about, what the issues are and what uh, Build's point of view is. Dave, how are you? Welcome to our show. I am great, uh, Brian. Uh, thank you very much for having me back. I'm uh, looking forward to the discussion. Excellent. So maybe just uh, before we get into uh, inclusionary zoning, tell me what what and who is BUILD? All right. Uh, BUILD, uh, our acronym stands for the Building Industry and Land Development Association. Uh, so we uh, represent builders, developers, professional renovators, and the various uh, companies and uh, agencies that uh, support uh, our industry across the GTA. We have approximately 1,300 members, uh, and uh, our members, uh, you know, basically build the GTA, both from a residential and a non-residential uh, perspective. So uh, uh, it's a very uh, active industry, and it's one that I'm very proud to represent. Excellent. And how long have you uh, been head of build? Yeah, so it seems like a lot longer, but I'm uh, coming up on three and a half years. Uh, it's uh, It's been quite the ride, uh, as uh, obviously it, uh, the last couple of years for everybody has been a very interesting one. Uh, but, uh, you know, the housing industry in particular has really been at the center of a lot of uh, interesting discussions around supply, around affordability, uh, working through the pandemic and making sure that the industry uh, works safely. Um, as we look at how the commercial side of the business is changing as well, Brian. What's the future of retail? What does that look like? Yeah. How do we do mixed use? More, you know, the need for more industrial spaces around uh, distribution centers uh, as we evolve into a different way of shopping. So um, there, it's a very exciting industry and I'm uh, grateful uh, for the opportunity to work here. Well, it sounds like we could do an actual uh, series of uh, shows on different topics, given that description of uh, issues. But let's talk about affordability and specifically inclusionary zoning. So, so the city of Toronto has come forward with some, um, some policy uh, proposals uh, to try to address affordability. Can you explain to us what uh, inclusionary zoning is and does it address affordability? Yeah, thank you very much. And inclusionary zoning is probably the worst title you could give to something like this because, uh, uh, you know, uh, every now and then I said, who, who came up with that term? What does it mean? And and, and so let me, for your, for your listeners, maybe just step back and define what inclusionary zoning is, because quite frankly, uh, 
my neighbor, when they read the column you referred to on the weekend, came up to me and said, I have no idea what you're talking about, right? So it's it's a bit of a challenge, as you said, but it's an incredibly important issue, right? Inclusionary zoning refers to including um, below market or, or housing within zoning requirements for particular developments, if you, if you boil it right down. So it's a tool that has been used uh, across uh, cities in North America. It's a tool that's being discussed in uh, the province of Ontario for several years right now as a way to incent the inclusion of below market units in particular uh, developments. So it's a way to address affordability, if you will. So hopefully that's a, a simple explanation. Where we are today is the province of Ontario uh, had um, uh, passed legislation that allowed municipalities to implement inclusionary zoning policies. They have indicated where those policies should be located around major transit areas. Um, so, you know, subway developments, go train developments and those types of uh, areas that they should be focused on those. But the definition of how they get implemented beyond that is really left to each municipality. The city of Toronto is the first out of the gate looking at how to implement the policies and that's where a lot of the focus and a lot of the precedent will be set in the province determining on how the city uh, moves forward. And so this is not everywhere it's just in major transit nodes is that correct? Yeah, yeah basically that's correct. Yeah. Really I thought uh, I guess I misunderstood I thought it was going to be a, a, a requirement to have affordability baked into developments everywhere so this is not across the GTA this is across Toronto, only in major transit node uh, areas? So it can be done across the province in, in major transit areas. I mean, the, the definition uh, will vary. Uh, you know, in Mississauga, for example, uh, out uh, your neck of the woods there, uh, there are various major transit areas that could be developed or there could be in, in Durham as we look at the growth train, you know, you get an other way there are major transit nodes, but for, for it is a focused around that type of um, um, uh, uh, type of development, if you will. Sorry, I just lost my train of thought there. So but what there is, <laughs> there's going to be a requirement to build a certain amount of what you describe as below market, but more affordable units. Who's going to pay for that? Well, that's the great question. So as you look at the way that other jurisdictions have done that, and that's where, you know, Toronto's uh, current approach and, and Toronto, uh, to their credit, has indicated they're going to continue consultations on this proposal over the summer. Uh, they were initially looking for uh, uh, bringing uh, recommendations uh, forward in June uh, to the City Council in Toronto. They are, are taking some additional time to, to make sure that they get it right to uh, and uh, now looking at the fall to bring forward proposals, probably in September. But one of the concerns that we had with the city's approach is other jurisdictions that have implemented uh, inclusionary zoning across North America have done it very differently than the city is consi considering. So to pay for it, there's offsets. So if a building was originally going to be 10 stories, if 10% of those units within the, in the building had to be uh, below market housing, perhaps you allow density bonusing, if you will, to uh, increase the size of the building to balance the needs uh, that uh, are created or the financial implications that are created by those affordable units. Perhaps you allow um, breaks from development charges. Uh, perhaps you allow uh, breaks from parkland charges, many of the other costs that are layered on uh, development. But without those offsets, uh, Brian, ultimately who's gonna pay for this is the consumer. And based on the current approach that are lacking some of the 
uh, what we believe are necessities of a good partnership model for inclusionary zoning, it could ask you know over 100,000 cost uh, cost per unit uh, to a unit uh, to a development, excuse me, that didn't have those uh, um, offsets as the industry calls them. And so, and so, therefore, the uh, the comment that I've received from some people is that uh, if that's the case, all that you do is in effect um, create more unaffordable housing in Toronto because what what have been um, you know, rented out or sold at uh, X price has now got to be X plus plus because it's got to add in the return uh, to compensate for the below market uh, units. And then those below market units end up being these units that, uh, you know, are always below market and, and it's luck of the draw if you get them. And then, you know, it's going to be key money if uh, you want to, you know, get them secondhand. Right. And so there's, there's a couple of uh, challenges with the current approach. One, it, it doesn't structure in a way to compensate for the uh, the costs assorted for those affordable units. So where do those costs flow if they're not compensated for? You're exactly right. It could uh, increase overall costs within those development areas. And, and what we're also very concerned about, if the pro formas don't work, if the the you know the the you know uh, banks look for about a twelve percent return on uh, development projects to fund them, and they're multi million if not billion dollar projects. If the if the if the budgets aren't so that you can get that return because you're having to offer 10, 20, 30 percent of the units in a development uh, below cost or, or below market, excuse me, then it doesn't make sense. The math doesn't work. The projects don't get built because they can't get the financing for them, Brian. And ultimately what you're doing is you're either increasing costs uh, for units that are getting built or you're robbing supply because the units, uh, you can't make the financing work. And so we're exactly where we should be having increased density around major transit areas, you're gonna have less density. And Sounds the building- like it's a, uh, it's a big issue. Um, we're gonna take a break issue. and come back in uh, just a minute uh, talking about uh, um, affordable housing in uh, Toronto and uh, and uh, inclusionary zoning with uh, the head of uh, Build, David Wilkies. We're going to take a break in just a second. Um, come back to us. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. inclusionary zoning on the Brian Crombie Radio Hour tonight with David Wilkes, who is the president and CEO of the Building Industry and Land Development Association, BUILD, uh, which is, uh, um, you know, the organization that uh, developers and contractors and builders uh, are part of in the greater Toronto area. And he's uh, penned a column this past weekend that uh, I read, and I thought that you would all benefit from understanding the issue because it either is going to make more affordable housing available if it works, or frankly, it could be government getting involved in the market and again, complicating things, messing things up and making things less affordable. So David, let me just start um, from 50,000 square feet uh, or 50,000 feet if I could. Um, The word was that there were more cranes in Toronto in the last two years than in any other city in all of North America building condos. And we've all seen it. And the condo development has been, you know, unbelievable. And yet housing prices have gone up dramatically. Why is it that if we have this increase in supply, this incredible increase in supply, we've still got unaffordability. We've still got housing prices. Is it as simple as 
the demand is outstripping supply? Yes, short answer. Um, so you're right, the, uh, the, the amount of development in the city has uh, continues to be strong. Uh, one of the things we saw during the pandemic, uh, Brian, was uh, a changing in the buying uh, intentions of people. We saw single uh, family homes in the surrounding areas in the 905 as uh, uh, the, uh, the terminology goes. Uh, off the charts, uh, really incredible sales numbers where people were uh, looking to for that race for space. As our homes became more than shelters, it became offices and then entertainment centers. Uh, people looked for more space. That uh, resulted in numbers that we've never seen with uh, new home sales in the single family units, um, 20 year history. Condos at the same time were, were doing okay. They're a little bit below where they are usually on a 10 year average. But what I find incredibly interesting, over the last month, uh, we have uh, seen uh, the condo sales once again uh, reach record numbers, uh, the highest that Altus, who tracks uh, uh, sales for us, has ever seen in the last 20-year period. So what the combination that that tells me is incredibly strong single-family sales, rebounding condo sales, a lot of activity, prices continuing to, to move upward is that we have a market that is fundamentally out of balance. And so my short answer is, do we not have enough supply to meet the demand? It remains the, the, the accurate and concise one. Yes, we need more supply. We did a study that looked at, uh, based on provincial uh, projections, how much housing we need and how much housing was being built based on some growth uh, projections. We're 110,000 units short over a 15 year period. 110,000 in what, in Greater Toronto or Toronto? Greater Toronto area, uh, and that was as of 2019. And the numbers have not uh, um, stopped from there. Brian, the other number that is inescapable, uh, based on projections of how the GTA will grow, 4.4 million more people are coming to this area uh, by 2051. We need more housing in order to support oh, hold it. Hold it, hold it, hold it. So I've heard the statistic of a city the size of Montreal is moving to Toronto in the next five to 10 years. That would be about you know one to two million people. You're talking about 4.4 million people in the next 20 to 25 years. In the next 30 years, according to the province of Ontario growth projections. So yeah, it's it's a city, it's a region that is booming. It is a region that is undersupplied from housing. It's a 50% increase in, in size. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's phenomenal. When you stop and recognize the numbers that are being projected for the growth, and, and, and what that means for the demands on infrastructure, the demands on housing, uh, the demands on uh, commercial spaces. Um, and you also recognize, Brian, as you and I have chatted in the past, it takes 10 to 11 years for projects to be, uh, uh, you know, from start to finish. We got to get started now on making changes that will ensure that we have the supply we need for housing, whatever that looks like yesterday. So if it takes 10 to 11 years for a project to get started and, and you know, the zoning uh, building approval process of that is how many, two or three or four? It's about how it's, it varies uh, depending on municipalities. Some municipalities are much quicker and much more efficient than others. Uh, it can, you know, anywhere from two to five years. So if you're talking about a couple hundred million dollar project and you got two to five years, just the present value, just the interest carry on that alone is tens to twenties of millions of dollars, is it not? Yeah, absolutely, it is. Uh, we've done a bunch of studies and I'd love to continue to chat with you about these uh, 
Well, another one that we looked at was what was the cost of delays uh, from uh, municipal approvals across the GTA? And we looked at how municipalities across the GTA and if they were meeting the provincially mandated approval timeframes. No one was, some were better, some were worse, but in all cases, the delay were adding costs, not only as you said, in carrying costs for the interest on the uh, loan to finance it, on the property taxes associated with that land and continuing to pay for them, on any escalation that might occur uh, on supplies. Certainly we've seen some really wicked changes in the price of lumber over the last little while, that more variable than long-term. So all these costs do add to um, uh, additional um, factors that will rise the cost of housing. And then, you know, the other big thing is that we continue to see government fees and taxes and the percent that they account for in the cost of housing at that 20 to 25%. So new development is taxed incredibly heavily. It takes a long time for the process to, to get uh, uh, underway and complete it, which adds more costs. And then something like inclusionary zoning that we were talking about in the first segment, if it isn't done through a partnership model with an offsets for the cost that the development uh, will incur, it's gonna add even more costs, which you know could pu push the total government take to around 30%. Which if it is passed on to the consumer makes housing less affordable. And so therefore oh. it's defeating the purpose of what it was intended to achieve in the beginning. Is that not correct? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, as we uh, so we did uh, some forecasting on what the current structure of the city of Toronto's uh, model would look like, and and uh, based on some numbers, once it's done done by outside experts from Altus, it could add up to one hundred sixteen thousand for uh, those units in the major transit uh, zones that are not part of the inclusionary zoning program. So I've heard rumors of some developers trying to get uh, projects approved that 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 uh, uh, that they want to get approved this year so that they get in ahead of the inclusionary zoning um, uh, that, you know, aren't as well planned as uh, nicely uh, designed. Um, you know, they're not going to go through uh, all the work that they would typically do to make sure that it's perfect just because they're trying to escape government regulation. And so we're going to end up with inferior product in the marketplace. Does that make sense? Yeah. And uh, yes and no, uh, I haven't heard about, um, you know, inferior product coming to the marketplace. I think, uh, you know, all the, the various um, steps along the planning process will provide integrity to the projects in the long term. One of the things that we're working with is understanding the transition rules and when these policies will apply uh, from uh, once they're approved by uh, various municipal councils. So uh, I think it would be reasonable to expect that if a particular council approves something on this day and they apply, uh, you know, a year later, I mean, it makes sense to, to try and uh, make investments that are multi hundreds of millions or billion dollars in advance of those uh, rules spike. It also makes sense that we have transition rules because once again, if a policy comes into place, if a project has already got financing to support that, if the rules change, it will put at risk that financing and put at risk that project for that much needed housing. So it really is a cascading and a snowball that as you look at changes that impact the financial integrity of particular projects of hundreds of millions of dollars uh, that are bringing in needed supply that could be passed along to the consumer, you have to do so in a no surprise environment that allows a heads up that it's coming, if you will, Brian, yeah. and a transition process uh, to allow uh, projects to adjust. So if 10%, 20%, 30% of the units are supposed to be designated within 
inclusionary zoning or below market costing, perhaps you phase into that. Don't do it all at once as well. These are all types of the discussions that we're having with the city and we're, we're looking forward to uh, continuing them. So, you know, it just doesn't make sense to me. If what you want to do is you want uh, developers to build more um, affordable housing, rather than making it a mandate or a restriction somehow that they have to do it, why don't you give them incentive to do it? Why don't you reduce taxes or reduce development fees or reduce something uh, or speed up the time frame for approval? Or as you said earlier, give them an extra couple of floors that the zoning wouldn't have, like what? Don't, don't incentives work better than restrictive regulations? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what we, we call offsets, right? So you offset the costs that are being incurred. Uh, so absolutely. And I think the bigger question, Brian, and, and, and this is a pretty fundamental mind with it, is the responsibility for affordable housing or below market housing, where does that rest? Does that rest on new home buyers and new home uh, develop, uh, new uh, developments in certain areas of the city around major transit uh, uh, areas? Or is that more of a citywide and municipal, municipality-wide? Should that be something where the cost for affordable housing are put on the entire tax base, as an example? And that the subsidies or the incentives that the developer needs to build those are provided through uh, a citywide application rather than a very targeted one where it's impacting only a very few. Uh, I think that's the fundamental question that we need to ask ourselves. Is this the right approach? There is no doubt we need to build affordable housing for those that um, call the GTA home uh, in the manner that which inclusionary zoning anticipates. We know that right structure of inclusionary zoning has a partnership model has those offsets, has the appropriate implementation and, time, and transition timeframes, and that we, we look at how long the, the policy applies to the units that have been designated. That is a fundamental need that we have, but I think the more fundamental need, should it be on the backs of the new homeowners in these areas, or should well, it be an overall societal responsibility? And when you think about it, overall society is creating the problem because you know, to a certain extent, it's nimbyism, it's, it's people's attitudes uh, that restrict the building of, uh, of, of new density, uh, particularly new affordable density in their areas that, that makes it difficult to, uh, to, difficult to get approval for projects and or increases the length of time to, uh, to increase projects. And when you think about a typical homeowner, they don't necessarily want anything nearby that's going to um, depreciate their home, home value. And so right. therefore, if there is, you know, a huge amount of increase in supply or a massive amount of affordable housing, those things would logically negatively impact their home value, wouldn't it? No, I think change is always difficult. That I will agree with you. There's, there's no question change is difficult. People are used to their environment. But in many cases, new development brings new energy. Uh, they bring, you know, uh, a resurgence to areas. There's, there's areas that where, uh, you know, there's a, a need for, uh, for uh, a regeneration of a particular um, uh, block or, or, or building area. So I think the premise that, you know, uh, and, and the, the bias, if you will, that comes with affordable housing is one that is not one that I support. We also recognize that regardless of the structure and regardless of the financial um, um, implications, uh, the, 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 the current model of inclusionary zoning has a combination of market and below market uh, units. So it, it, is a, it is a different way of approaching it. It is in a way that I think is a, 
is a healthy way um, uh, with the financial concerns that we've talked about set aside. So uh, I think um, investing in communities and, and what that brings with it is a really important part of a growing region. But I also recognize how difficult change is for people that have lived in particular communities that are structured in a particular way for decades. So you accept that NIMBYism is potentially a cost, but what your pitch is that the NIMBYs are, are wrong effectively, that they shouldn't be thinking about the negative attitude, uh, the negative impact of, uh, of more housing and or more affordable housing. They should think about it as something that brings new energy to their communities. Yeah, I, I think wrong is a harsh word because that's a, and I, I'm not trying to split hairs, Brian, but and, you know, I understand that um, the difficulty associated with change. I understand that people like what they understand. Uh, part of the reason that you see such extensive consultation when new developments are undertaken is so that people understand what's coming and what the change is and how it could be positive and how it is going to impact the community. And perhaps with new people, you get new restaurants and new, new other areas that, uh, new other um, uh, businesses and services to support the growing uh, demand in the region. So, so I think that it's important not to come with a bias around what change will be because change can often be positive and that in my mind is certainly the case as it relates to new development. Okay, so um, change is good, brings new energy to a community. Your argument is that it should be, the, uh, the, the cost of affordable housing should be borne by society in general, by all taxpayers, not necessarily just by new developments and therefore new home buyers. So how do we, how do we have it paid by all taxpayers then? Well, I mean, uh, I think that if you put it across the uh, property tax base, uh, there could be a, a, you know, uh, uh, funds generated through that tax base that are uh, uh, targeted to support affordable housing. I think what developers are very good at is building homes, building, building, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, new condo, new apartment developments. So I think if you if you focus on what people are good at, whereas the industry builds the units that are required, and the governments support the need for affordable housing through as broad a base tax approach as possible, then I think that's, that is the right model. If that is not a model that makes sense, or if there is not a model to, to apply the costs across a broad property tax base and, and the taxes that the city collects through the property tax, then an inclusionary zoning model must include offsets that we've talked about, it must be a partnership between the industry and the government, it must provide those long lead times and the transitions to adjust. It can't be a blunt instrument, with Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
because my experience with blended instruments is they don't work. It needs to be a partnership. And so I really think the fundamental question is the one that we've been discussing. It's not the need for affordable housing or, or below market housing, but it's how it's paid for and making sure whatever mechanism to pay for it is done so based on best practices that we've seen across North America and cities and municipalities that have implemented and the fundamentals that I've talked about, the partnership, the right offsets, the right timing and, and the ongoing maintenance of it. Um, those things have to be front and center. And those are the discussions we're currently having with the city of Toronto. Well, I encourage you to uh, continue those because I tend to agree with you. But I do think that supply is, uh, is, a, is, is a huge issue. And we're going to take a break and come back and talk a little bit more about supply issues in the greater Toronto area, particularly if we think about four and a half million people coming here in the next 30 years. Stay with us. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on saga960am.ca. Welcome back to the Brian Crumby Radio, our Saga 960. We're chatting with David Wilkes, who is the president and CEO of BUILD, the Building Industry Land Development Association here in the greater Toronto area that developers and builders and contractors, people interested in in what's going on from a building standpoint to get together in an association to uh, to uh, exchange uh, best practices and to lobby government uh, and to do uh, to do research, etc. Um, David, you know, I used to be in the healthcare business, and uh, I've interviewed a couple of people that have talked about what the success is of getting vaccines developed, and they've said that you know we change things dramatically in regards to our interaction with government. Uh, clearly, we had a need. We had a huge need for people that needed vaccines. But um, what uh, the different regulatory agencies did is they sped up their review and approval of everything um, because it was beneficial. Um, so the, uh, the the submissions to uh, to do trials sped up. The review of the trials sped up. Everything in regards to government regulatory. They didn't change their regulatory approvals. They didn't make it less um, you know rigorous. They just sped it up. So that was number one. Number two, what they did is they contracted for output, which reduced some of the risk that uh, the, 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 the market had. Um, so they, they you know, entered into big contracts with Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, et cetera, because you know, that reduced the risk. And then number three, what they did is they then bought it and supplied it. And as you know, in, in most uh, G7 countries, vaccines are provided for free. So in the past, getting vaccines, getting drugs approval, uh, approved and launched in the marketplace has cost hundreds of million dollars. Is there any analogy there for what we need to do in real estate? You know, number one, speeding up the approval process, not changing it, not making it less rigorous, but speeding it up. Is that number one? And number two, should government actually, you know, make it easy by contracting to buy some of these affordable um, buildings and uh, and 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 then taking uh, and going into the rental and CMHC and and housing and things like that sort of does that with financing and then um, you know number three you know when you think about housing and pharmaceuticals and education we're making it available to people should we should government as you say society be doing a better job and maybe it's not getting it free but should government be paying the difference between market rates and the rates that they want to supply um 
to uh, to people that are in need. So my question to you is: Should Mark? Should the government be doing anything comparable to what we've done in speeding up vaccines? And you know, just to underline it, vaccines are here in half the time that we thought they would be. Um, there's a lot there, Brian. I love your example and your comparative to vaccine development and housing supply. Uh, I like to, I always like to start where the listeners benefits with a very short answer. And that is again, yes. Um, uh, I think if I may, uh, and not my area of expertise, <laughs> just as a, a citizen of this country and a, a proud Canadian, a proud Ontarian, a pr proud resident of the GTA, I think it's been remarkable the work that's been done on vaccines. I think the, uh, it is a, a modern miracle and I, and I, and I commend governments, you know, working without a roadmap, working without any precedent of getting us to where we are. I mean, it's been too long, no matter how long it's been, but it's been remarkably fast. And we're talking here on, uh, you know, uh, the last half of the year, we're not even 18 minute, uh, months into the declaration of the pandemic by the World Health Organization. And we're already debating around when are we getting our second doses of vaccines? I mean, we, need, we have a lot to be grateful for in this country, and that's one of them. But if I, if I get off my, uh, my bully pulpit as a, as a citizen and talk about that in housing, exactly. We can be better. We can take less time than the 10 to 11 years that I've talked about that it takes from, um, you know, uh, 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 beginning to end for new developments and the costs that are associated with that. Um, and we have seen, and I will give full credit to our municipal partners, a lot of innovation, a lot of willingness to do things differently. And I think of the, one of the lasting legacies we have from this pandemic is people are thinking, how do I get to yes, as opposed to how do I get to no, which again is a, exactly what happened with vaccine development. So, you know, once again, we'll talk about the city of Toronto because we've been focusing a lot on that uh, in our conversation. There has been a tremendous effort on speeding up approvals. There's been tremendous effort of working with industry to speed up approvals. We also have a responsibility as an industry to make sure the development applications that we have are submitted properly and are clean and are complete and are, you know, provide the information that planners of the various municipalities across the GTA need to make uh, the decisions they make to ensure that it's meeting the zoning requirements. Um, some municipalities are doing a great job of uh, working with the development uh, community to provide guidance before applications are made so that they, they know what's to be looking for, uh, what is being looked for, excuse me. But there is absolutely no doubt that what's happened with vaccine can and should happen in housing. And what I'm very pleased about it is, and it is happening um, with a willingness that I haven't seen before with our municipal partners. So uh, I'm quite hopeful in that regard, because it gets back to that fundamental truth. We need more housing. And one way to do it is to speed up approvals, just like we needed vaccines. Okay, so let me ask you a couple of quick questions that I could. Uh, um, if supply is the issue, how do we get more supply, particularly given that we've had supposedly more tower, more cranes in uh, Toronto than any other city in North America? Uh, so some of the people that I've talked to over the course of the last year have made some suggestions. I'd like to hear what your reactions. Jennifer Keyes met the former chief planner for the city of Toronto said, we made the right decisions on zoning on Young Street, but we didn't do it on Bloor Danforth. When we built the Bloor Danforth line, we should have increased the zoning at major uh, transit terminals, um, transit stops along Bloor Danforth that would allow 
the creation of Young and uh, Eglinton's Young Shepherd type uh, developments um, at major stops along Lure Danforth. What do you think of that? Yeah, so I think one of the things that we could do is as a right zoning. So if a, a particular uh, area, whether it's Blue or Dam for the Young and Eglinton, the examples that you've given, Brian, if a project's been approved that has 15 stories or whatever it might be, another project with that same uh, uh, footprint and number of stories, uh, that, that, should have, that should have a speedier approval process than the first one. Because, you know, uh, to a certain extent, why are you duplicating that work? I do think there needs to be areas designated across the GTA and in the in the city where uh, we are going to have increased density. Transit uh, corridors are the absolute right place for it to be. And the city has done a lot of that work where we have designated around go, go train lines, around subway lines for increased density. And we're seeing that not only in Young and Eglinton, not only along Blue or Danforth, but we're seeing that um, up uh uh, you know, on the, uh, oh God, the, the Shepherd Extension. Sorry, I forgot the, uh, the name of it briefly there. And you are seeing some uh, increased uh, density there. That is where the growth has to happen. You look at cities across the world and, uh, you know, they, when they build new uh, transit, when they in, make uh, investments of public money and in infrastructure, they do so by also working with the development community to make sure that the, uh, uh, you know, there's development that support that transit by having people live there. So it eliminates need for cars. It, it, it maximizes the benefit of that infrastructure investment around to housing, around uh, transit, excuse me, for housing. So, so the short answer, again, I, I'm, I'm saying that same short answer a number of times is, yes, we need to do that. And yes, the tools exist within the Planning Act to do so. And, you know, the, the Azerbright zoning is one of them and designating areas for growth. But if we take it away from transit, what we also have to do, because every, not everybody wants to live on a subway corridor. Not everyone wants to live you know, uh, with access to downtown. For areas uh, in the surrounding areas, the 905, we also need to be designating land for growth now. So we need to be saying that this is, this is where new growth will happen as we have those 4.4 million people coming in in the next 30 years. Let's make the investments in infrastructure that support the need for that housing, and let's make those decisions now. That's other conversations that we're having with the municipalities across the region. I spoke with a, I spoke with a planner um, who talked on this issue, and he said two things, uh, and I'd like your reaction if I could. Uh, number one, what he said is that, Brian, stop focusing on Greenbelt. The issue is the Gray Belt, which is an area inside the Greenbelt that is uh, primarily um, low-density industrial, and retail and parking lots and things like this, where the official plans of the local municipalities aren't anywhere close to the, uh, the density in the uh, places to go legislation of the last government and have lots of room for increased development. Uh, and then second of all, he said that uh, this proposed Highway 413, it's this new uh, bypass around uh, Toronto outside of the 407. Um, he said, um, we'll make affordable housing and the dream that everyone has of a single family home available. And he says, if you don't have that, then forget about single family homes as a dream for people under the age of 40. I think he's on the right track. I'm not sure about the outcome about forgetting about the dream, uh, but uh, you know, uh, there, is, there is a lot of land for development uh, within the GTA. Uh, once again, the terms used by the industry and the planning community is the yellow belt, which is areas within uh, urbanized areas. 
Uh, there's the white belt with those adjacent to uh, those urban areas, those areas that have been designated for growth. That's where I think we need to be focusing a lot of our, our planning attention. And then completely agree, the green belt, uh, we've indicated as a, our industry position, a development in the green belt is not something that is not part of what we're advocating for. That green belt has been set aside by the uh, by the, the Ford government as a, a protector zone, and we recognize and appreciate that. And, and, and we... Uh, and there's no change that we're advocating for. With the 413, I also think it's a really important discussion to have on as we have the growth, you know, the last, uh, it's built 100th anniversary this year, Brian. And what we've done is look back over the last 100 years, and we've done a series of decade by decade reviews of the decision and the planning that's helping uh, happen to, to get to the GTA to where it is now. The last big time we invested, save and except 407, money in uh, highway systems was probably 30 or 40 years ago. If we don't start investing in things like the 413, et cetera, now, we're gonna have even more gridlock than we currently have when people return to normal travel patterns. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The uh, Canadian Chamber of Commerce came out with a report that you may have seen just a couple of weeks ago that said that uh, the Toronto uh, financial sector was now the second uh, largest in North America that is now bigger than Chicago and, uh, and Los Angeles. So not as big as New York, but uh, bigger than all the other cities and the, uh, the second fastest growing. And that to fuel that, to keep it going, we need to have more housing. And uh, they did this uh, description of employment uh, districts in uh, the greater Toronto area. And downtown was by far the largest, but I was shocked and surprised to see that the second largest employment zone in all of Canada is there around the uh, the airport? Um, the yep. of course corporate west center. You know all the warehouses and manufacturing and distribution that are southwest and north of uh, of Pearson. And their comment was, "We're not doing the right things for that, both in regards to transit, but also, as you mentioned, uh, um, highway construction." And they mentioned the issue in regards to uh, to truck transit, and that we're not doing the right things to make sure that we've got uh, uh, transportation for trucks. What do you think about that? Yeah, as we said off the top, uh, uh, I think we're going to, I agree, um, the whole changing nature of the way that we live and the delivery environment that we have and the need for increased distribution centers and, and the need for land to support those and then the, the need for uh, uh, transportation infrastructure to support that delivery. Absolutely, we need to uh, be thinking about that now. And that's why I think the, the number one message that, that I hope your listeners take away from uh, this discussion is the market is out of balance. 
the demand is not decreasing. Indeed, it will probably increase. We need more supply. We need more infrastructure. We have to work in partnerships with governments at the provincial and municipal level to provide that, to provide the affordable or below market housing as well. But if we don't have having serious conversations now to the demands that are going to be placed on the region from a housing and employment space uh, perspective in the decades to come as we grow, as we've described, um, we all have lost valuable time that we need. David Wilkes, President Chief Executive Officer of the Building Industry and Land Development Association in the Greater Toronto Area. Thank you so much for talking to us today about the housing business, about affordability, about inclusionary zoning and explaining that concept to us. I think bottom line, what you're saying is that you can't just have the requirement for affordable housing to be placed on new home buyers. It should be something that is shared by all of society. And, uh, and I agree with that. And I think that my bigger issue, uh, I agree with that, but I also think that uh, increasing supply and uh, increasing the, uh, uh, the rapidity of, uh, of approvals and decreasing the approval time periods is key. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure, anytime. Thanks, David. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. Welcome back to the Brian Crumby Radio Hour at Saga 960. Uh, you know, that was, a, I think, a really interesting uh, review with uh, the head of Build. Um, yesterday, we had an interview with uh, the, the, the economist with uh, the CMHC. Um, I've had uh, real estate developers on my show. I've had uh, realtors on my show. I've had developers. I've had uh, planners. I've had architects. I've had city planners. I've had transit people. I've had the benefit of uh, uh, a lot of different people that have uh, come and, uh, and chatted with me. And they've all, I think, consistently suggested that uh, the problem with the housing market um, and particularly the problem with affordable housing is not a market problem. It's a government problem. And it's a local government problem primarily. And I think we need to call a spade a spade and we need to call out our local governments. Um, that are creating a problem um, of lack of supply and lack of affordable uh, supply and, and exasperating the situation, making it even worse. And so I've got uh, six or seven uh, reasons uh, why the problem is what it is and, uh, and that suggests some solutions for it. The first and probably the most important one is the restrictions that uh, local governments put in place in number one, the time that it takes to get approval and number two, the bureaucracy involved in getting the approval. And I really think that this regulatory impediment is almost greater in real estate than it is on almost any other segment of our economy. And you know, it's interesting and ironic that we think about uh, real estate development as one of the most capitalist-oriented, free enterprise-oriented uh, uh, businesses, but it's got more regulatory fingers into the pie. Uh, from uh, you know the time to get approval that it's got to be in accordance with a official plan and a secondary plan and uh, building permits and uh, and then uh, you know they get involved from a heritage standpoint and a conservation standpoint and a and a zoning standpoint and then does the architecture right um, etc. The regulatory process that builders developers have to go through is greater than you would if you were launching a product. And I used to be in the pharmaceutical business. You know you had to do studies and prove that they worked. 
And then you had to prove it to the FDA, but they didn't tell you what bottle it had to be. It didn't tell you what size it had to be. It didn't tell you what color it had to be in. It didn't have the same kind of, they were worried about what they should be worried about, which was safety and efficacy. That was it. And that, you know, you had a good uh, um, disclaimer in regards to side effects, but it wasn't as impactful as all of the negatively impactful as all of the regulatory impediments the government puts in place. Then number three, it's the, the informal stuff that the regulatory process puts in place uh, where you've got a planning department and a, and a city councilor and a mayor that may all agree and may not all agree. And people tell me over and over again, you got to get the city councilor to agree. And it's almost as if it was, you know, the city councilor had, it was a czar uh, in their local area and, uh, and they trade off for parks and uh, section, whatever 67s and, uh, and, and, and other things they want daycares and streets and, and other issues, almost like they were the czar of a local area, the Lord of a, of a local fiefdom. That's wrong. You wouldn't, again, have that in any other segment of, of our industrial society. But for some reason, we accept it um, in, uh, in real estate. And I think it's a, it's a mistake. So what does it lead to? It leads to less development, slower development, uh, increased uh, costs uh, in uh, land carry, interest carry, um, um, you know, discount rates that, uh, that uh, apply, high discount rates that apply for a longer time period, such that it is more costly to build. And so therefore, you end up having a you know, you build less or you build more expensively uh, and, or you charge more. Um, and uh, and it, it leads to, to less supply and the supply that gets built is less affordable. I think there's some other things. Um, I've had a, a couple of shows on the missing middle where people have described how we, we either zone for condos or for single family homes. So 100 units per acre and greater or six units per acre or less. When the vast majority of people say supposedly in study after study, they actually like the 20 to 40 acres per uh, acre that you would get in uh, Port Credit or in Streetsville or in uh, Blue Rest Village or in the beaches uh, or in Kitsilano or, or the North End and you know example after example. And people like the brownstones in Manhattan or the, the old uh, pre-war homes in Blue Rest Village, but you don't build those. And in and, and the United States right now and in, in Vancouver, they're looking at laneway homes. They're looking at uh, um, you know, uh, homes built out of garages, uh, uh, homes that, uh, you know, basement apartments, uh, making it more affordable for people to bring in, in homes in, in, in higher density than single family, but lower density than huge apartment buildings or condos. New technology. I had a show on uh, this week in regards to uh, prefab homes built out of containers. I think there is new technology out there and we've got to make it um, easily more easy for developers to try out those new technologies and build them. Um, you know, stick build uh, that, uh, you know, to six to eight to 12 stories is just as, uh, as safe from a fire standpoint as, uh, as, as concrete or steel, but we have regulatory impediments that don't allow you to build it. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that's wrong. Um, and then I think, most importantly from a supply standpoint, that you've got official plans and zoning that is not consistent with, uh, with what we need. Uh, that's either in place in the uh, places to go legislation, places to grow legislation, and or in what we all know needs to take place in regards to uh, the expansion of, uh, of housing in Toronto. 
Um, you know, the head of build, uh, David Wilkes, told me that four and a half million people are moving to Toronto in the next 30 years. I've been told that the you know population the size of Montreal is moving to Toronto in the next 10 to 15 years. Um, where are we going to put these people? We just don't have enough supply. And, and cities aren't zoning um, consistent with what we need to have from a density standpoint. And the city of Toronto is launching this major new zoning, which is asking if uh, we're going to increase the zoning along major boulevards and around transit nodes. And the answer has got to be clearly yes. Let's get on with it. And, you know, you think about Humber Bay Shores, which used to be a bunch of, uh, you know, low-rise strip motels that's now one of the most dynamic most beautiful condo markets maybe with development density comparable to young and eglinton why don't we have those in more places you know why it's beautiful people love it and not only the people that live there but people want to go shop go to restaurants and walk around there uh, and you can have that in more places um and uh, the mr christie site is going to be another example i think that the 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 uh um the Etobicoke uh, Go Train station that's under development uh, with a couple of million square feet of development is another example. Uh, Six Points in Etobicoke is another example. The uh, the old Weaver site um, across from the distillery district is another example. Uh, Downsview uh, uh, Airport is another example I could go on. And we should be developing those and we should be making it easier and quicker for people to, uh, to develop those. Uh, industrial sites that uh, are, uh, are zoned industrial that, uh, that could be mixed use, could have some development. Um, uh, development and retail sites in what people call the yellow belt or the white belt with its inside the green belt that have zoning that is far less than uh, should be achieved. Jennifer Kiesmat, the former uh, chief planner of Toronto that told me that zoning was increased along Yonge Street when they built the Young Line, but wasn't along the Blur Danforth area. And, and you know what, we don't have a, a comparable to Young and Eglinton along the Blur Danforth line. Uh, and we could at a couple different transit spots. And, and there has this sort of attitude of nimbyism in regards to, well, I don't want that zoning because it's gonna impact my whole neighborhood. But if you take a look at Young Street, there is development at those major intersections, but half a block away, it isn't. It's single-family homes, and uh, and so we should at uh, you know Young and Lawrence, Young and St. Clair, um, Young and Shepherd, Young and Finch, Young and Steeles uh, if it goes up, uh, Young and Highway Seven if it, it goes up. Um, we should allow and 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 incentivize uh, higher-rise development, greater density development, because that's what we need. And the same thing around go train stations. So my bottom line is the crisis with housing prices in general, which are too high in the greater Toronto area, and with affordability, which is way too, um, you know, affordability is not there, non-existent. And frankly, just the amount of, uh, of housing that we need over the course of the next 10 years with the city of Montreal moving here or 30 years with four and a half million people here is primarily due to local government not doing what it needs to do. And in fact, standing in the way and I could mention development fees that every developer has told me are charged in the wrong way and are a disincentive to uh, development. And then transit. I think we need to build transit. Uh, we've been talking about regional express rail, uh, all day two-way go, smart tracks for too long. Let's get on and build it. And frankly, bottom line in the end, highways. We haven't built highways other than the 407 in what, 30 years? We need some highways because people are gonna be moving to Milton, to Caledon, um, to, to you know the northern ends of York region. They are because the dream still is a single family home and we've got to make it available and we've got to make it available inside the Greenbelt. And so therefore we've got to build 
highways to get them to and from work. Anyway, that's my two cents worth on uh, the lack of housing, on housing um, prices that are too high, and on affordability that just doesn't exist. Thanks for listening. Good night. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on saga960am.ca.